This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. This is the decision point featuring Anand Naduri. Off we go. Anand in the last show. We waved an accusing finger at a number of teams drafting in the top 10 in the NFL draft this past year for drafting perimeter players over core foundational assets. And we triggered some people in this audience. When you're watching college football highlights and you're seeing these plays being made, majestic plays down the field by wide receivers, by cornerbacks, and they are pirouetting through the air, feats of athletic brilliance that few people could accomplish. The idea that you wouldn't go get that guy, the idea that you wouldn't want to go get Kyle Pitts, that you wouldn't want to go get Jamar Chase, Jalen Waddle, and that you would go with a guy that, that you rarely ever see on Saturday and then soon to be on Sunday an offensive lineman, it's just it's not easy to conceptualize the value that these positions bring to NFL teams. So let's talk about that today. What are the most valuable positions that impact wins and losses in the NFL? Obviously quarterback. I mean, I feel like that goes without saying. But, but we should say it. Yeah, I mean, but if you don't 100% believe in your guy, then drafting, if you have high draft capital... Throwing that dart is never a bad idea. Like we talked about last time. I don't hate the Bears drafting Mitchell Trubisky. I think they drafted the wrong quarterback, but at least they had the right idea, right? The next, the next position of obvious importance is edge rusher, right? Like the, if, if a quarterback hasn't gone number one in recent years, it's been an edge rusher. They're just the two most important positions in the sport right now. Either you have a court, either you're drafting a quarterback or someone to go get him, right? Everybody talks about the Browns and how they've been building for years, brick by brick, a championship roster. And now you look at them, and they are one of the most deepest, talent-rich franchises in the sport. When did it all start? Miles Garrett with the 101. One of the best edge rushers to come out of college in the last decade. And the thing is, when you realize, there's the clip of Mike Tomlin um, going to Chase Young in the, I can't remember if it was the regular season or the preseason last year. And he goes up to him and he goes, man, I love watching you play. I just hope we never lose enough games to get a guy like you. <laughs> and I'm like, I love Mike Tomlin. I'm like, yeah, exactly. That's the goal, right? The goal is to never, ever, ever draft at the top of the draft out of losing enough games to get to the top of the draft. You never want to be in a position to get a Bosa. No. No, no, no. Unless you trade with somebody and, and you know, you rob the Houston Texans, which seems to happen weekly at this point. Uh, it's just, to me, I think that once you get past quarterback and edge rusher, which are obviously the two most important positions, I think now you, as the league evolves, it's become so important 
um, both tackles. I know you say obvious, but I've seen debates on what's more important, edge rusher versus cornerback, and I'm always stunned by that debate. I'm like, is this a debate? Like To me, it's obvious that the only way that you prevent a quarterback from picking apart your defense is to pressure him, and the way to pressure him is with an elite edge rusher consistently. So the, the counterpoint to getting a great quarterback is to have a great edge rusher on the other side. Right. Because, I mean, historically, like if we use, obviously, Brady's the best to ever do it. If you look at what historically has bothered Brady, it's actually not edge rushers. It's interior pressure. That's just something he doesn't like. It may be leftover remnants of him tearing his ACL in 08. Like, whatever the situation is, Brady really does not like interior pressure. And that's just part of the scouting report on how you build a line for a specific quarterback. Which defense famously defeated the Patriots in back-to-back Super Bowls? Yeah, I mean, those four were... Who was the captain of the New York Giants defense? The first run was what? Strahan, JPP, Tuck, Yumanura. Oh, my God. (laughs) See? Oh my God! Yeah, you see, yeah, yeah. but but where, where, it starts with Strahan. Yeah, he was the foundation of that defense, and you build around Strahan. And that's not to say that DB isn't important. DB is very important. It is. It is important. Of course, it's important. Ask the Packers. Jair Alexander is very important. The problem is when we go into something like this, Matt. Your offensive line is only as good as its weakest link, whereas your defensive line can be built around one guy, which is nuts, right? That's not typically championship rosters aren't constructed that way, but you can build your defensive line around one guy. Or you can take Washington's approach and say, hey, we're just gonna throw we're just gonna throw draft picks at first round defensive linemen and good luck stopping us. Because I mean, last year who really, really, really made the Tampa Bay offense look not so great? It was Washington. They kind of ran over everybody else in the playoffs. Like, it's further proof. Like, your D line is that important. Washington got some really solid value in Cam Curl, and and don't be wrong, they've they've done a really solid job with Rivera building. But it's all based on you can't block our four guys. Good luck. You we'll give you seven offensive line. You can bring two tight ends in. Nobody's stopping <laughs> Chase Young, and, and the guy they bring off the bench is Ionitis. Like, it, I mean, it, what you're talking about here is a legitimate six deep pass rush of every single one of those guys is a Pro Bowl caliber talent. That's so fun. If you're Ron Rivera, how fun is that? Oh, my God. Can you, defensive coordinator dream right there. Oh. So once you get kind of past that level of, all right, we need our quarterback, we need a guy to go get their quarterback, and we need someone to protect our guy, right? Interior line's obviously important. and Let's talk about that. So this is the hierarchy of effective NFL playmaking. It starts with competent quarterbacks having time to throw. Yep. The first order of business is the competent quarterback. And then pressure the quarterback. Yep. And then stopping the pressure on your quarterback. And that's where the left tackle in particular becomes so valuable. When you look at it, right, the way that defensive coordinators move edge rushers around now, your right tackle is as important more important, however you you base your scheme in the way that you want to run things. Almost as important. Almost as important, right? So so if you're looking at a guy at number one overall and there's not a strong quarterback or you don't have a need and there's not really an edge rusher that, that steps up, if you pass on somebody simply because they project as a right tackle instead of a left tackle, 
I think you've done, it's not necessarily malpractice. It's just, I kind of question how you understand the value of all of these things, right? Like we can all agree Quentin Nelson's unbelievable, ridiculous. And then as an interior lineman, he has value because he's that good at his position. So we're not talking about, you know, if you have the best receiver prospect ever, don't draft him. That's not what we're saying here. What we're saying is all things even. You have an elite edge rusher at the top of the board, an elite quarterback, an elite left tackle, elite right tackle, elite safety, elite corner, elite wide receiver, right? If, if you have all of those things at the top of the draft, this is just how we kind of see all things being equal, how you should draft said positions. So I think, you know, the the thing for me after you get past the O-lineman and the D-lineman is that's when DB to me becomes really, really important because uh, it, it doesn't matter how good your pass rush is if you get slammed with the James White out routes that, that New England absolutely murdered Atlanta with in the Super Bowl. If the ball comes out that fast, it's an avenue of neutralizing your pass rush. So I would build the pass rush first, obviously. But then you need to go find a number one corner because the athletic freaks in the NFL. If you think about the Quentin Nelson pick that was in the 2018 NFL draft, that was an interesting draft, and there's a bunch of quarterbacks in that draft. That was the Mayfield, Darnold, Josh Allen, Josh Rosen draft. Yeah. Also, Lamar Jackson went at the bottom of that first round. Yep. But in that draft, there was not a premium left tackle. I mean, Mike McClinchy was the first tackle off the board. Mike McClinchy was not an elite left tackle prospect. No. There was one elite edge rusher, and that was Bradley Chubb, and he rightfully went top five. Yep. He went before Quentin Nelson. But if you're the Colts and you're looking up and you don't need a quarterback because you think you have Andrew Luck, (laughs) and Bradley Chubb is off the board, and there's no offensive lineman that can blot out the sun, then the choice becomes do we go corner, do we go guard, or do we reach for the next best edge rusher, which would have been Marcus Davenport, but he didn't go until pick 14. But you could rewind the clock and look back at this draft. This is exactly what we're talking about. Had they not drafted Quentin Nelson, they should have gone either Josh Allen, who was the next quarterback taken, and that was the first position you mentioned. Yep. And you mentioned that's the most important. And the next most important would have been edge rusher, Again, with Bradley Chubb off the board, you go Josh Allen or you go Marcus Davenport. And the next player that went after Davenport that they should have drafted, if you could rewind the tape and redo that draft. So we can't draft Quinton Nelson. We've got to draft someone else. It's got to be Josh Allen. It's got to be Marcus Davenport. Or you go corner because Jair Alexander went a few picks after Marcus Davenport. Is that the next most important position after tackle? It's a very nuanced position, and it's very dependent on what you want to run, right? There aren't a whole lot of Jalen Ramseys and Jair Alexanders out there. If there were, everybody would be trying to get one all the time. They just, you don't find one very often. So, more than anything else, cornerback is entirely about value. If you have that top 10, top 15 talent at corner, go get them. Go get him because I mean that's gonna that's gonna change life. Your life is a lot different now. Imagine hypothetically if you're Green Bay, Jair Alexander goes down and Kevin King is now your number one corner. You're not beating anybody. Sorry, not anybody of value, right? 
The thing is having that true number one helps you out so much with your number two, number three, number four corner in the same way that having a true alpha number one wide receiver changes life for your two, three, and four down the line. I think the way that those two positions are built are so mirror image of each other that now at this point, a lot of people are are realizing, hey, if everybody's going to be paying these slot wide receivers and running backs money, we might as well go get a nickel or a slot and pay him a decent amount of money and leave, you know, our number two corner as, you know, a younger guy or a guy on an island and just see what happens. It's it's kind of the way that we look at cornerbacks and the way that we look at wide receivers changes as somebody succeeds with the formula. So New England's success with the formula of small, undersized slot receivers that are just quicker than linebackers and too small for safeties to really get their hands on. I think changed kind of how people are doing things. Now that you've kind of seen this element of vertical pass games taking over, now people want to draft big, strong, physical wide receivers. Think DK Metcalf, Mike Williams, just guys in in recent drafts that are just, holy cow, look at that guy jump. Let's, Let's just throw balls up to him. Right. So there are kind of a bunch of different avenues when you go to the wide receiver cornerback. It's kind of that same edge rusher versus tackle discussion that you have. I personally tend to think that corner is just a little more important than wide receiver because I think it's easier to find a good slash solid wide receiver than it is to find a corner. I mean, ask anybody that that's that's played in the NFL, been in the NFL, whatever. The freakiest athletes on the team are often cornerbacks because it's such a reactionary position. And it's also a difficult position to scout. Right. It's impo- damn near impossible. When you look at the measurables, Kevin King is more athletic than Jair Alexander. Yeah. They were drafted in the same draft class, but Alexander went in the first round. Kevin King went in the second round. And I remember thinking, wow, Kevin King, great value. You're getting him around later. Same team is getting both guys. One of these guys is going to hit, but the problem with cornerback is they're so difficult to scout at the college level and how they're going to translate to the NFL that's the advantage of going lineman. Yep, you know what you get. Again, you could go back and rewind the tape and say, well, you can't draft Quentin Nelson. You think you have Andrew Luck. You should go J.R. Alexander. Now knowing what we know, in hindsight, you should go J.R. Alexander over Marcus Davenport. The problem is Marcus Davenport, coming from the University of Texas at San Antonio, was so obviously going to hit Because rarely does a small school player at any position make it into the top 15 of the Mm -hmm. NFL draft. It just doesn't happen very often. Khalil Max, the last one I can think of. So that means that he must be such a can't-miss prospect, even make it in the top 15 from UT San Antonio, because scouts can look at that player and project him accurately to the NFL, whereas none of these corners can be projected accurately. Denzel Ward was a top-five pick in that draft, and he's been eclipsed in every way, by J.R. Alexander. It's just a much more difficult position to scout than edge rusher, which lowers the risk and makes the Kinlaw pick a couple years ago such a smash in the mid-first round. That was such a gift for the 49ers where they're like, listen, we need a a can't-miss edge rusher. Normally, that guy goes in the top five. We're looking up, and because this particular draft is so rich with talent, we can get a can't-miss edge rusher would pick 14, 15? What a gift. Yeah, and I think the other thing, Matt, that we that you don't hear about often enough, right, is there are a lot of college coaches that won't translate to the NFL, but 
one of the things is it's a lot easier to scout wide receiver than it is to scout cornerback because a lot of it translates a lot more fluidly. So if you want a receiver that you know is going to produce immediately, look at Ohio State's track record. Look at Clemson's track record of putting wide receivers in the NFL. So obviously being a Columbus guy, Brian Hartline, go look at the receiver room at Ohio State. Most of those guys are going to hit in the NFL at wherever they're drafted because the odds that their NFL wide receiver coach is better than Brian Hartline is virtually non-existent. Right, the the odds that you go take a Nick Saban defensive back from Alabama and their position coach in the NFL is going to be better at coaching defensive backs than Nick Saban is virtually non-existent. Larry Johnson at Ohio State with the defensive ends. There are a few position groups from certain universities that you don't even really have to bother to scout all that much. You know that every ounce that can be gotten out of them to their NFL potential is going to be taken out of them already. That kind of changes the math on how you have to evaluate guys from areas like that. Like when we go into, um, if you take an Alabama defensive back or an Alabama offensive lineman, for example, or even a receiver at this point, whatever whatever position it is you want you want to take from Alabama, you know that odds are they've gotten everything out of that player that that you possibly can get. It's not like Alabama players come into the NFL and are remarkably better than they were in college. That doesn't happen very often. The reason that these guys get drafted so high is they've already hit their potential. A lot of them in their last years at Alabama are already NFL players. They already have NFL-level coaches. They have NFL-level nutritionists. And when you look at people like that, there's a reason that not a whole lot of guys from UT San Antonio get taken in the top 15. If you get an Alabama edge rusher, an Alabama defensive tackle, corner, safety, whatever, you know they're going to be good. They're going to be good. That's the thing. You know they're going to be good. They have a high floor. Remarkably high floor. But there's also the potential they've been maxed out, and they have a lower ceiling than a guy from a smaller school, which is how a Devontae Smith can win the Heisman. Casual. Without an impressive physical or athletic profile. Yeah. I mean, they got everything out of Devontae Smith. I'm not even sure that's more impressive than the Brian Hartline example you gave. I looked up Brian Hartline. (laughs) He has 2,000-yard seasons in the NFL. Yeah. He was a multi-thousand-yard receiver. Brian Hartline. Yeah. I I did not know that. I I would challenge anyone in the audience who claims that, oh, yeah, they knew that Brian Hartline was a a multi-season breakout in the NFL. Oh, shut up. Shut your mouth. I think those were the Ted Ginn days back then. Oh, man. I don't know. It was in Miami. I don't know who the hell else they were throwing to. Mike Wallace? Was that the Chad Henney years? It was Ryan Tannehill. Ryan Tannehill started all 16 games. We should have seen it, man. We should have seen it. No wonder Ryan Tannehill struggled early in his career. His number one wide receiver was Brian Hartline. Yeah, I think Brian himself would probably tell you that he, that he coached a couple better guys than he was a receiver in the NFL. You know, I can't believe I didn't see it. We started player profile in 2013. I'm ashamed that I didn't come out of the gates as this raging Ryan Tannehill fan. Oh, I mean, I think we all kind of missed on that evaluation, right? Since he took over, I think it was week nine of 2019 in Tennessee, Ryan Tannehill is QB4 in general scoring. But no one wow. cares, right? Because it's not sexy. Oh, I care. You know what I mean? It's it's The general public doesn't care because it's not sexy. It's not fun. He's not making Mahomes-esque throws every week. He did that in a run-first offense. 
And now he has Julio Jones. Yeah, fade Ryan Tannehill at your own risk. <laughs> Good luck. Imagine, imagine someone saying that, fade Ryan Tannehill. Right? If I had told you that three years ago, I'd have been laughed out of the gym. Like, it... it it's just it, that's how quickly the world works now. Josh Larkey's been telling me this. He's like, I keep getting Brown Tannehill stacks, and I'm just going to keep doing it on underdog. Yeah, because why not? Typically, when when you t- think about, obviously, we think about it more analytically, right? When you think about fantasy football as a risk reward prop, where is the risk in Ryan Tannehill? If you draft him as QB ten and he finishes as QB ten, congrats, you did your job. The odds that he finishes much higher than that are very realistic, and people don't care, right? Whereas if you draft Mahomes in round three, he has to hit his QB1 or you've wasted that pick. You could argue, as Patrick Murphy did on the last Mind of Mansion show, that Patrick Mahomes is officially overrated in fantasy football for that reason because Tannehill's just a better pick at cost than Mahomes. The, The opportunity cost of Mahomes is too high. Tannehill, it's too low. And I love looking back at this 2018 draft because look at the wide receivers that went after Alexander. It's just such a perfect snapshot of how NFL GMs navigate the draft based on position scarcity and what affects wins and losses. So you see, you see the Browns, you see the Packers picking corner in the top 20. And then there are no wide receivers drafted in the top 20, but there are two first round wide receivers. They went close to back to back. DJ Moore. And Calvin Ridley. Mm -hmm. And they've both been super producers at the NFL level, both with these multi-thousand-yard seasons on their resumes already, just like Brian Hartline. Yep. And Calvin Ridley is exactly what you talked about. He was a fully-formed professional when he landed in Atlanta, and all he's been doing is being that guy that he was at Alabama to the great reward of fantasy footballers that have drafted him. Right. DJ Moore was more athletic, has a higher ceiling, and because he's younger, he could still finish his career with more fantasy points than Calvin Ridley. But up to this point, Calvin Ridley has outproduced the more developmental prospect that was DJ Moore. Well, then when you look at it, right, it's, it's got to be a part of your draft process. How polished is said prospect? Because if you're taking someone in the top 10, and they're not a generational freak athlete. They better be pretty polished, right? Like, like I don't think anybody, even though we knew it wasn't the most important position in the world, nobody scrutinized the Quentin Nelson pick because we saw him. We know how good he is. There's no, there's no, nobody needs to go watch tape on Chase Young and Joey Bosa to know they were good. The, the takeaway is that it was a good pick. Yeah. The Nelson pick was a good pick because you either go with a small school player with the sixth pick overall in Marcus Davenport, you can't do that. Or you go Jair Alexander, which no one had in the top 10 on their board because that position is so difficult to scout, especially with guys coming from Louisville. Yep. And you can't go wide receiver there because you can get Calvin Ridley and DJ Moore in the 20s. Yeah. And that's where wide receivers should go. Every NFL GM should look at this draft and they should say to themselves, and I'm looking at you, Miami, could look at this draft and say, why the hell would we ever draft a wide receiver in the top 20? It doesn't make sense. The only time that I would go away from that is when you get that generational Calvin Johnson, Julio Jones type of, oh my God, look at this guy. Because, I mean, as good as we thought Julio would be as a professional, we were like, oh wow, this is a perfect wide receiver. 
I mean, he even blew all those expectations out of the water. Like, that's a very, very, very rare scenario. Even Jamar Chase didn't check those boxes. Jamar Chase was not nearly as big as Julio Jones. Julio Jones was 20 pounds heavier and two inches taller coming out of Alabama. And can fly. Than Jamar Chase was coming out of LSU. Think about that for a second. Yeah, it's nuts. And, and he was bigger, stronger, faster. Yeah. <laughs> what? Same with Calvin Johnson. Yeah, if, if you're looking for baby Calvin Johnson, then, you know, you don't get a lot of those guys. It's not like you can find one of those in the draft every year, right? DeAndre Hopkins is a little bit undersized for a receiver that plays the way that he does. I mean, when you look at kind of the guys that have taken over as kind of the alpha wide receivers in football right now, Devontae Adams, second round pick, Stefan Diggs, fourth round pick. It's not all, oh, hey, here's a bunch of round one guys. Whereas if you look at dominant edge rushers, dominant tackles, dominant quarterbacks for the most part they're all high draft picks the guys that you think of the guys that we're excited about all have all high draft picks now i'm not saying you can't go find a third round russell wilson a fourth round dak prescott a sixth round tom brady Mm. but good luck betting on that to be the norm isn't realistic or reliable whereas you can get receivers that are productive in third fourth fifth sixth seventh undrafted running backs same situation Your skill position players don't have to be blue chip prospects headed into the NFL. That's not necessary. This is why the Jalen Waddle pick was so maddening to me. You should be going either tackle or edge or corner. Because even Stephon Gilmore, first round pick. J.R. Alexander, first round pick. We even mentioned Denzel Ward. That was a good pick. Yeah, it was. Marlon Humphrey. Most of these top corners are first rounders. Not so at wide receiver. No. When you can get DK Metcalf in the late second round. And then this year, uh, it was Terrace Marshall. Yeah. We're talking about the NFL is, is embracing the DK Metcalf, Terrace Marshall archetype. Well, why the hell are they letting that guy slip to the late second round? You just look at the mock drafts. The Dolphins knew they could have had Marshall had they gone Sewell yep. with the sixth overall pick. Just based on the positional impact, based on position scarcity, and based on the opportunity cost and the sequencing of picks, every angle you look at that Waddle pick. It just looks worse and worse. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And the thing is, look, I understand Joe Burrow and Tua both had a lot of input in their, you have to assume, right? Both had a lot of input. They're the, they're the guys for their franchise. You don't, you don't give up that kind of, you don't use that kind of draft capital to draft a guy and not wholeheartedly believe in him, right? So, I mean, the rumors were Miami, even at one, might have taken Tua. Because, I mean, the the whole thing pre-draft was, before that season where Burrow broke out and broke every passing record that exists, was tank for Tua. And Miami was presumed to be the worst team in the league. Brian Flores took over. They won a few more games than they should have. And ultimately got got what they wanted, right? Granted, he had an injury. It's going to take him a little time to be himself. But that's what they wanted, Going into the season, you got what you wanted. So when that guy tells you, hey, take my teammate Jalen Waddle, he's probably going to be very, very good. I know him. I know I can work with him. I think they're trying to maximize Tua's ability to succeed without understanding what that actually means. They have weapons. Like That wasn't, that wasn't an issue. Cincinnati, same situation, has weapons, right? The, the, the concerning part, if you're Cincinnati, especially over in Miami, is... The interior of your O-line was what got Joe Burrow hurt. 
It wasn't your tackles. Not that the tackles were great, but like the interior of your O-line was awful. Like as bad as I've ever seen. Not to single anybody out, but Bobby Hart. Oh my God. Anybody, any Cincinnati Bengal fan will tell you all about how bad he was last year. And when you look at it that way, right, what you're replacing matters. When you're building a team, what you're replacing matters, right? And that's why we get so aggravated when teams go for the Teddy Bridgewater, Sam Darnold kind of stopgap as opposed to trying to figure out what are we doing in the future with our quarterback. Because the thing is, those guys are going to win you games. And if you can't compete for a Super Bowl, why are you trying to win games, right? Find out what you have in, in your young quarterbacks. Like the Colts, let's say Wentz doesn't come back until week 12 or whatever it is that's floating out there right now. Find out what you have in Jacob Eason. Do not go bring in some veteran quarterback to kind of fill the room out. Figure out what you've got in Jacob Eason. That's the best scouting that you can do. And not to, we're not going to trigger Philly fans again, but that's what you should do with a Jalen Hurts. Give him this 17 games. Find out what he is. And if he's better than we all think, then you're set up very well. If he's worse than we all think, suddenly now you have a high draft pick and can do something with it, right? What you replace matters at an NFL level. And so that's why when you kind of decide to build the way that the Cowboys and the Bengals and the Dolphins have, which is, hey, we're just going to employ track teams at wide receiver and dare you to stop us. It can work. I'm not saying that it can't work. It's worked before. It'll probably work again. But consistently long-term, you're not going to be be able to pay all three of those guys for very long. You're eventually going to have to allocate resources and money to a different position. And that's where it gets kind of difficult. Because right now, the Bengals, the Cowboys, and the Dolphins have three guys at wide receiver where you're like, whoa, those are some dudes, right? The right. problem is, typically when you're paying guys like that, you're the LA Rams, you're Seattle, you're Buffalo. You're somebody in that tier that's looking to win a Super Bowl. Whereas I don't think the Cowboys, Dolphins, and Bengals can do that right now. And at some point, you've got to sit there and analyze the Jalen Waddle pick for what it is. It's a toy that makes your quarterback happy. Is that worth it to you over somebody that legitimately could have protected him for 12 years? I don't know. I say no because Terrace Marshall would make him even happier. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. And I love Waddle. <laughs> You're looking for a big, strong, athletic playmaker who can win above the defense and after the catch. Well, that's actually Terrace Marshall. It's not even Jalen Waddle. They didn't have a lot of experience in college. Injuries robbed them of their final season of production. Yep. And they played in the shadow of multiple NFL wide receivers. Yep. But with Terrace Marshall, we had the measurables. Yep. Jalen Waddle opted out. So we're talking about minimizing risk, especially in the top 10. You want to be able to take a position that you can confidently scout. Well, it was a lot easier to scout Marshall than it was Waddle. We still have no idea what the hell Waddle is. He's, he's a black box prospect. He didn't even test. And I mean, the, the thing is about Jalen Waddle is people are very, very, very enamored with long speed in the NFL. It's not as important as you think it is. The reason that Tyreek Hill is incredible is not because he runs a 4-2-9. That's not, that's not why he's great. It's because his short area quickness is so immediately good that it allows him to blow pie people and get to that long speed. People are way too enamored with, oh, this guy ran fast. Okay, I don't care. 
how did he run fast? That's how Kadarius Tony got selected in the first round. Exactly. The thing is, it's one thing to look like take a take a prospect like a Josh Allen or a Carson Wentz. It's one thing to say these guys have ridiculous arm strength, which they both do, right? They both have mobility, can run around, can extend plays. They were both prime candidates to be, hey, we're just going to start this guy immediately and see what he is, right? The thing that you've got to figure out when you're scouting someone like that is how much does having that arm hurt their ability to process? The biggest problem that you have with strong-armed quarterbacks is because they can make every throw, they're going to try to make every throw. It's Brett Favre syndrome, and you can see it in scouting. And some guys, you can kind of mediate that out of their game. Some guys, you can't. It's as difficult to scout a position as anything else. So if you're not looking at a quarterback, tackles fairly easy to scout, edge rushers fairly easy to scout. When you get to wide receiver, the big thing is go back to Terry McLaurin's draft. Every Ohio State fan can tell you we loved him. Loved him. Most of us wouldn't have put him in the top two rounds of the draft. We didn't think that highly of him. Curtis Samuel. Second round pick, Terry McLaurin. We got to see both of them side by side for a bit of time. And most of us would have taken Curtis over Terry. And that's from seeing him week in, week out for multiple years. You would have taken Paris Campbell over Terry McLaurin. Right. The Colts did that. Right. One of the best GMs in the sport did that. Exactly. And they were on the same field together all the time. So the question becomes... The question becomes for me is how good can Paris Campbell be? Very. 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 Two late-round sleepers for fantasy football, Brian Edwards and Paris Campbell. I love Paris Campbell. Yeah, Paris Campbell, you're chasing that rainbow. Oh, yeah. And with Brian Edwards, he just happens to be one of the best college prospects at that position in the last 10 years. Yeah. And he slipped to the third round because he didn't test, because he had that ankle injury yep. that Jalen Waddle did. Yet somehow, because Jalen Waddle went to Alabama, no one cared. Yep. But because... Brian Edwards went to South Carolina. Oh, well, we're worried about the ankle. We need to push him into the third round. It's like Something that I think people need to understand, too, is a lot of the Ohio State players that, that from that time, right, that, that end of the Urban Meyer, beginning of the Ryan Day era, were just drilled so hard in practice day after day after day with JT Barrett as their quarterback, with Cardale Jones as their quarterback, with all of these guys that they were trying to get reps to, that they were probably repped out about as much as receivers can be at that time. So, yeah, naturally they're going to be a little more injury-prone than your average guy. There are just more snaps that they've taken. That's just how the sport works. There's a, a quantifiable percentage of injury risk on any given snap that you take. And the more that you take, the more likely you are to get injured. That's just basic math. The guy that Ohio State had that nobody wants to talk about. It was kind of an under-the-radar signing. Dallas signing Malik Hooker to play the middle of that cover three that they're going to want to play in Dallas, to me, is one of the most underreported moves of the entire offseason. Because if he's healthy, that's a guy that's worth a top 15 pick. He went in the top 15. Right. A safety that legitimately allows you to run single high a la Earl Thomas is worth a top 15 draft pick. Now, I'm not saying that you should draft safeties in the top 15. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is when you have someone that has the ability to be, to be a generational prospect, I think Jamal Adams was also in that draft. Guys, if, if he is so elite at his position, throw all of this out. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about if you have a draft pick and are not sure what direction to go in, 
quarterback, edge rusher, tackle, then figure out the rest. Because if there's an elite prospect at any of those three spots, you can draft them reliably and not worry about it. They're going to be worth the draft capital that you invested in them. They're going to be worth their second contract if they earn it. And you're never, ever, ever going to worry about, oh shit, will TJ Hawkinson hit? Will Noah Fant hit? Well, drafting a tight end in round one is so scary because if they don't hit, that's a wasted pick. You didn't learn anything. That's where, you know, when we talk about guys like that, the Kyle Pitts pick is not my favorite, but I don't think it's ridiculous considering he's testing as the best tight end ever. Like, I, I don't hate it because if you're elite at something, you're elite at something. You know, the same thing we went went on about the Quentin Nelson pick. His position isn't necessarily of importance, but he's so good that it doesn't matter. Pitts and Chase were so much more defensible than Waddle. Mm-hmm. That's the point. That's why we're fixating on Waddle more than Chase and Pitts because Chase is the closest we've come to Julio Jones. He's just a smaller version of Julio Jones. So that pick made some sense to me. I still would have gone Sewell, but it made some sense to me. Yeah. Atlanta, I would have gone Sewell, but the Pitts pick made some sense to me. Yeah. In Miami, I would have gone Sewell, and the Jalen Waddle pick made no fucking sense to me whatsoever. Yeah. When you're talking about safety, I think safety is the next priority. After yeah. wide receiver, I think you want that captain of the defense. You're trying to hit on the next Ed Reed. You're trying to hit on the next Earl Thomas. And if we go back to this 2018 draft, flash back to this 2018 draft, which is so instructive, the Chargers picked the right guy at the right slot, Derwin James. Yes, they did. Derwin James is that guy. Absolutely. He's just been hurt. Same with Malik Hooker. Yep. That's why we're so bullish on the Chargers. We're telling you, go and take the over on the Chargers' total wins for 2021, wherever you place your bets. I'm doing it. Anand's doing it. We're all doing it because injuries are mostly random. Yep. And the Chargers have been laid low by injuries for many years, but they've upgraded the offensive line more than any other team in the league, and they're getting potential superstars back healthy that have not played a full season yet, but when they do, it's going to be special this is not an indictment on philip rivers in any way my personal opinion on him has been made perfectly clear i think if you put eli in the hall of fame you have to put him in too that's just my two cents we'll get into that some other time oh man hall of fame talk out of nowhere but but the chargers are still being valued as a team like philip rivers is their quarterback he is not now you have this dynamic Second year, same offense. We love the stat. We love everything about the Chargers except their injury history. Everything. Find me a position that they don't have an absolute dude at. Corners, two good ones. Safeties, like them both. Linebacker, loaded. Defensive line, loaded. Don't they have a Bosa? They have a Bosa. They have a Bosa. They have a Bosa. How do you not love a team with a Bosa? And then look at their offense. And you sit here and you ask yourself, literally, as much as we love the Browns, roster for roster, the Chargers have a roster. It's, it's not quite what the Browns is. It's not, it's not quite the same. But they're close enough that if you're, if you're fading the Chargers, I don't know what you're doing. Loaded. Right. Loaded. I, I, Loaded. I mean, everybody loves Denver's pieces. The Chargers have better pieces. 
everybody kind of thinks, oh, well, well what are the Raiders going to do? Nothing. They're the Raiders. They're going to win seven games that they shouldn't win and lose six games that they shouldn't lose. That That's just <laughs> the Raiders are what the Raiders are, right? The, the thing is, taking that approach with the Chargers is different for me because the entire regime has changed. Your quarterback is different. Your primary edge rusher is different. Your defense entirely is different. Your head coach just came off assembling one of the best defenses we've seen in the modern NFL era in L.A. last year, right? And now you've got this dynamic second-year quarterback with all of the toys, Eckler, Williams, I mean, just run down the line. And everybody forgets and doesn't like Keenan Allen because he got hurt once like five years ago and nobody wants to let it go. Keenan Allen's really good. Like, this offense has the potential to be what what people are drafting all of the Cincinnati receivers to do this year and what they're drafting all of the Cowboys receivers to do this year. You could make the argument, and I wouldn't disagree with you, that the Chargers are better set to have that 5,000-yard season from Herbert and three 1,000-yard receivers down up and down their roster. Like, the, 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 the gap between the Chargers and the Chiefs is not what you think it is. And I would not be entirely shocked if that division gets pushed to like week 17, 18. I, I, I just don't understand where the, the everybody's down on the Chargers because they have injuries. Okay. <laughs> so does everybody. You know, they're, they're better set than most teams to, to handle that too. When you look at this zone of the 2018 draft, Derwin James, Jair Alexander, it makes the Vander Etch pick just look that much worse. You go middle linebacker in that spot, that's a mistake. You're better off going corner. You're better off going safety. I don't care how many tackles Vander Etch compiles. The Pittsburgh Steelers just got a volume middle linebacker in Joe Sherbert for a six-round pick. Yep. Whatever. Yep. Whatever. A volume middle linebacker should not be drafted in the first round any more than a running back should be drafted in the first round. So you see, after... Derwin James, Jair Alexander, you start to see the Vander Eshes get picked. You start to see Rashad Penny get picked. Sony Michelle goes in the first round. Hayden Hurst goes in the first round. You're so much better off just selecting the positions that have a greater impact on wins and losses and forget middle linebacker, forget running back, forget tight end. But there was a player who is the equivalent to the safety in terms of positional value in the NFL draft. That was selected right after James and right after Alexander. Do you remember who it is? I do not. His name was Frank Ragnow. Yeah. Frank Ragnow, I think this year, will be viewed as the best center in the league after Corey Lindsley was an all-pro last year, and now Corey Lindsley is a Charger. Who'd have thunk it? And the reason why Corey Lindsley is a Charger, because the Chargers had money to spend. But guess what, Anand? They didn't need a quarterback because they hit on Justin Herbert in the top 10. Yep. No matter what you think about Herbert, what do you think his weaknesses are, doesn't matter. Like with Josh Allen, you chase the upside of that athletic build and that arm talent, and you don't worry about his processing. You don't worry about how quickly he pulls it down when faced with pressure. You just don't worry about it. You don't worry about how much fear he has in the pocket. You can't measure that. Get out of here. You just go get that guy, and he ends up being Josh Allen. He ends up being Justin Herbert. Yep. And 
you, so you're the Chargers, you're out, you're shopping in free agency, you don't need Herbert, you'd love to get a left tackle. They don't exist. Yeah, they don't hit the market ever. Ever. They don't exist. Which was the case all along for Sewell and Slater in the top 10. Yep. They don't exist. Edge rushers, Chase Youngs, they don't exist. You can't get Miles Garrett in free agency because he was extended. Right. Because, of course, he was the anchor of the defense. The whole defense is built around him, as you said. But the guys you can get in free agency are centers, are safeties. Those are the guys that do make it free agency. And that's why they are a lesser priority than the big five that you laid out earlier. Mm -hmm. Quarterback, edge, tackle, cornerback, wide receiver. Yep. The next tier are safeties and centers because they are available in free agency, like Corey Lindsley, like Malik Hooker. Also important. But... They're still worth it in the back half of the first round because yep. if you don't go there, you end up with Rashad Penny, you end up with Rashawn Evans, and you end up with Hayden Hurst, and you don't want those guys. No. And this is just another hit on the offensive line in the last five years in the first round by the Detroit Lions. This is why they're coming. This is why you can't be surprised when the Lions are good in a couple of years. No. You just get ready for it. Prepare your body for the Lions to roar in a couple of years because even though there's been a big changeover in the leadership, they've been drafting well, especially along the offensive line. And Frank Ragnow was the move there at pick 20. How are the Colts built? We think when they're one of the smartest front offices in the league. Andrew Luck abruptly retired. They immediately prioritized the O-line. They're still trying to figure out if they have perimeter weapons that can win a Super Bowl. We don't know the answer to that yet. They're yeah. still in the process of building it, right? We'll see. Paris Campbell. We'll see. The Lions are doing a lot of the same things, and no one cares because they're the Lions, right? The, there's a certain element of I'll believe it I, when I see it with the Chargers, with the Browns, with the Bills, the Lions, his, the Jaguars, franchises that historically have had such public gaffes in important draft decisions important traits, just stuff that you see where you're just like, oh my God, are they ever going to figure it out? The Lions, I don't know if they figured it out yet, but they're on the right track. They're going to eventually be something to contend with, if only because they run the ball 97 times a game and that O-line just mauls people, right? Like That may be how they eventually win games. Nobody's going to be upset about that. I mean, hell, ask the Lions fans. They'll take a playoff one however they can get it. Whatever the case is. That's how the coaches want to win games. Right. And you know what? The players enjoy winning that way, too. You go into the locker room after a game like that, after a 17-10 victory. Oh, yeah. Those players are happy. They feel great because they were punishing their opponent, and that feels good. Play by play by play by play. You didn't notice it on the broadcast, but there were... All these micro battles happening at the line of scrimmage, at the point of attack, and the Lions are going to be winning a lot of those. And you're not going to see it on the broadcast, and you're not going to see it on the scoreboard. No. But eventually, 2022 rolls around, it starts mattering. The The pinnacle of that is the NFC Championship game. I think it was 2017, whenever the Eagles won the Super Bowl. The Minnesota Vikings defense was incredible. They couldn't put a body on anybody. They just got washed out by the Eagles O-line in that game. And that was the moment where everybody said, oh, hell, maybe it's Nick Foles, but they can win the Super Bowl as long as that line can do that to New England. And they did. 
Yeah. Clean jersey Nick Foles. Oh, yeah. And, and the thing is, you know, one of the more, more underreported parts of that game, if you go back and watch it, is the Eagles' D-line was giving Brady and that O-line all kinds of problems. But Philly's O-line was just pushing dudes. And Brady made it work because Brady is Brady and he's incredible. But like those are the little like games within the game that as a GM you've got to figure out, okay, I'm just going to assemble all this O-line talent. I'm going to trust my coaches and my coaching staff to figure out what the best what the best five are and put them out there. But the thing is, Matt, you can't just have five good offensive linemen anymore. Somebody's going to get hurt. It's just the nature of the game. You really want seven or eight guys that you really believe could get the job done in any situation. And that's why when you get to the later rounds of the draft, four, five, six, seven, if you can find somebody who might be a little bit undersized, but is a developmental prospect that maybe is able to play swing tackle. We talked about Quinn Maynard's in the last show. Right. That solves two problems for you at once, right? If you have this versatile offensive weapon that can play running back and receiver, right? Take him in round four, five, six, seven. Why? Because it's like we talked about last time. If you are an NFL player, you do not want to be drafted in the seventh round. That is free money for the teams that are there. Throw every dart you can. If I am an NFL general manager, in round six and seven, I'm just acquiring picks. If I've got an expiring contract, I'll trade him. Six-round pick, six-round pick, six-round pick. Just throw darts until you hit something. Because even if one of them hit, the opportunity cost of drafting someone there is non-existent. It, what, what is a sixth-round draft pick worth? Two hundred grand in cash considerations, maybe, if that. Like, But nobody chooses to value those dart throws. And I think when you start to realize, you know, oh, shit, there are some really productive players in round four, five, six, seven. That's how championship rosters are maintained. It's not how they're constructed, but it's how they're maintained. That's why you shouldn't even be drafting a running back in round two and three. It's like, oh, well, I know you say running back doesn't matter, but you still need a good one. And, you know, you can't tell me that drafting Nick Chubb in the early second round wasn't a good pick. Well, actually, anytime you draft a running back in round two, three, even four, the opportunity cost is offensive line depth that can make a difference in whether your team wins or loses throughout the season. And you just can't say the same about that running back. Now, but let's go back to the 2018 NFL draft. Fun draft. And when you look at the 2018 draft, you look at a first-round running back. Not even Rashad Penny. Forget Rashad Penny. That was... Oh, God. That was one of the catastrophic process and outcomes in the history of NFL draft picks. Catastrophic process catastrophic result but with pick 31 sony michelle sony michelle goes off the board and i love juxtaposing the sony michelle pick with the pick that came right after that sony michelle and then lamar jackson Ozzie Newsom's final gift. The final gift from Ozzie Newsom yep. to the Baltimore Ravens. Oh, yeah. And Lamar Jackson was the right pick there because of nothing Lamar Jackson did. It was the right pick there because it was a quarterback in the first round as opposed to a running back in the first round. The first round picks are so valuable because of that fifth year option. Yep. You get an extra year, you get an extra 20% of that player under contract. 
So when you're drafting in the first round, especially the last 10 picks of a first round, the calculus is it's all about that fifth year. Yes. And valuing that fifth year. 1,000%. Ask the Rams how valuable getting that fifth year out of Todd Gurley was. It wasn't. It wasn't. It's not. There's no value in the fifth year of a running back. No. But if you can get Lamar Jackson's fifth year locked up. Oh, yeah. If Lamar Jackson hits and you have him for that extra year, that's everything. That's a Super Bowl. Yeah. The other thing, too, is when you talk about how teams value these things, if you're after pick 20 in any given draft, it means you had a pretty legitimate shot at winning a Super Bowl, right? That's, I mean, that's my assumption. After pick 20, 20, 21 on, which tells me more likely than not that you don't need a quarterback. So teams that pick 21 to 32, some fun advice. Trade with somebody that didn't get their guy at the top of round one, that like second tier of quarterback prospects. Force them to pay you for that fifth year of or that fifth year option, right? Trade into the top half of the second round from the bottom of the first, because the odds that you get the guy you were targeting anyway is going to be pretty high. There's always day two of the draft. There's a few guys, seven, eight, nine, ten guys, until you get to like pick forty-five, where you're like, wow, any of the, these guys easily could have been first-round picks. And the thing is, the difference between pick twenty. And pick 40 isn't nearly as much as you think. The difference between pick 20 and pick 8 is huge. Enormous. Once you get past that 20-25 threshold, yeah, there are going to be a lot of really, really good players drafted there. But hypothetically, if Baltimore didn't need a quarterback, for someone to pay you for that fifth year Lamar Jackson. And I think you're going to start to see teams do that as things kind of progress and you kind of see how valuable that fifth year is to teams as they try to build championship rosters. And our man, Chris Ballard, with the 36th pick in the 2018 draft, selected Darius Leonard. Darius Leonard. And a couple picks before that, even Dave Gettleman. Even Dave Gettleman can hit. Yep. With a small school guard. (laughs) That's what you should be selecting. Right there, right there, you get a first-round talent who leaks into the second round. Yep. Why would you pay that premium in the first round for a guard when you can slide back to the beginning of the second round and pay them a lower wage scale because it's a guard. We talked about it in free agency. They're available. Yeah. Centers are available. Safeties are available. The fifth-year option is not nearly as important at guard as it is at tackle. No. So if someone wants to trade up because they're enamored with Isaiah Wynn and his upside at tackle. Let him do it. Sometimes... Even a Dave Gettleman's going to stumble into the right pick at the right time, and that was the Will Hernandez pick, whereas the Darius Leonard was born of a general manager that has what we believe to be sound process underpinning the decision-making. But what was the common denominator there? Interior players that went at the point of attack from small schools. Yep. Will Hernandez went to UTEP. Darius Leonard went to South Carolina State. I didn't even know there was such a thing. <laughs> right? I don't, I don't know that school. Right? That's another cheat. In the second round, when you're looking to max out upside, you can't be drafting second-round Alabama players. They've been picked over, man. Why would you draft a second-round Alabama player? That's like shopping at Marshalls. All that shit's been picked over at Neiman Marcus already. So, all else equal. Yeah. Right? You, you put in front of me... Alabama prospect X in the second round or small school prospect X in the second round, similar grades across the board. 
I'm always taking small school player X. Interesting. I mean, and, and that's that's part of the, everybody has their own process, right? So, like, I don't think that that's flawed thinking. It's just, you know, I don't apply that to everything. Like, there are certain guys that come out, maybe they had an injury history or maybe somebody thinks they're undersized or don't like them. There is no way in hell Eddie Jackson should have been a second-round pick. Fire everybody. If you needed a safety <laughs> and you let Eddie Jackson get to the second round, fire everybody that scouts DBs on your staff. What in the world are you – what did you not see? Because, see, the thing is, Indy, when we talk about how much we love their decision-making process, they drafted Malik Hooker, and you could argue he was a bust where they took him. But he was a bust because of injury, not because he couldn't play. He was a bust because of something you couldn't control. Last week I told you the only evaluation tools you should have to evaluate someone's draft pick are the things they knew at the time. And at the time, that pick was not only worth it, it was the right decision. They were going to build their entire defense around him. He got hurt. Derwin James got hurt. It sucks. Jamal Adams, change of scenery, has gone well-ish, I guess. But like when, when you go into it at that level, I think one of the things that you have to understand is there are foundational pieces of your team, right? And they're not going to be the same for everybody. They're not the same for everybody. Quentin Nelson is absolutely a foundational piece of the Indianapolis Colts. They're not going to trade him. They're not going to let him go. He's going to play his entire career there. They saw Malik Hooker as that for the defense. It's not the most important position in the world, but it's important. And we see this elite, multi-year starter, all-pro future here. That's why I love Pittsburgh giving up the first-round pick for Minka Fitzpatrick. You knew what you had in him immediately. It doesn't matter what happened the first half of his rookie year. No one cares. You knew what he was coming out of Alabama. And you got that guy, and life changed for that defense immediately. That's one of their... They didn't draft him, but that's now one of their cornerstone pieces along with T.J. Watt. When you build rosters the way that kind of general managers do now... They don't always have to be built on premium positions, but you have to lock them down. Your quarterback doesn't have to be top five in the NFL, but he's got to be pretty good. Your left tackle doesn't have to be the best in the NFL, but he's got to be pretty good. Pass rushers don't have to be the best in the NFL. They've got to be pretty good. And so when you're swinging for the fences on quarterback, left tackle, edge rusher, if they hit, even at their price, they're relatively a value. That's what we're talking about here. If you go into the second contract of these guys, there's still going to be a relative value. Whereas if you draft a tight end, you have to pay him top tier money. He's never going to live up to that. There's no way. There's just no way. I have a great example from the second round from 2021. You look at offensive line. The Cincinnati Bengals did that thing where they have limited resources and they can only send scouts to a handful of teams. So they're going to draft the guys they know. They're going to go Jackson Carmen from Clemson. Mm-hmm. Clemson's been picked over. You're not getting great upside for the dollar on Jackson Carmen. And then you see a few picks later, Tennessee drafts Dylan Reduns from North Dakota State. All else equal, if I'm drafting a lineman in that spot, I'm going to go with the North Dakota State guy over the Clemson guy. That's the principle I'm talking about. Yeah, and, and I think when you look at a process like that, I can understand where you're coming from. It's just, it's, it's hard for me to go across the board with it. In hindsight, when we look back at these drafts, from Marcus Davenport to Darius Leonard, these dudes 
I'm talking dudes from these small schools. Yeah. They hit, dude. They just do. They just do. They hit. And the the hit rate and the value on those guys typically exceeds the guys from the big name programs because you're paying that brand premium. Yeah. You you have to pay extra to get that brand equity. The Bengals paid up at number one for Joe Burrow. Why? Because he won a national title. You watched him. He's done it already. He's You're just hoping that scales to the next level. If you are not a diehard college football fan or a diehard draft person, you probably didn't watch a lot of Justin Herbert at Oregon. I did, and I still missed on that, right? So so the thing is, it's, it's not a one-off process. It's not just, oh, this worked once, let's do it again. Every, you know, NFL prospect is a unique snowflake. You can't you can't just say, "Oh, we drafted an Alabama tackle last time, let's do it again." Typically, you're not in the position to be able to do that. You've got to be able to scout the player, and that's one of the things that's frustrating when people are saying, "Oh, Alabama quarterbacks never succeed in the NFL." Before Deshaun Watson, Clemson quarterbacks never succeed in the NFL. Yeah, yeah, pre-Mac Jones maybe. How in the world are you going to tell me that a player is not going to be successful? based on the university that he went to. You know, the vaunted Michigan quarterback pipeline after Tom Brady. Ah! The vaunted Miami, Ohio pipeline post Ben Roethlisberger. (laughs) Aaron Rodgers went to Butte Community College, I think it was, and then transferred to Cal. Josh Allen was at some random California college and transferred to Wyoming. Let's not sit here and act like... Anybody understands anything about where these quarterback prospects come from. Most elite NFL players aren't Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields that were scouted as the number one guy in their class since they were in the eighth grade. Like That's not how this works. And yes, that happens. But if you don't have the opportunity to get that guy, what we're trying to explain to you is the more darts you throw, the more likely you are to hit on somebody. I highly doubt that anybody in Washington at any point thought Kirk Cousins was going to start a quarterback ever because they had RG3 and they took him number two overall. But don't you think everybody involved with that organization is glad they threw that dart? It made no sense at the time. We all thought they were crazy. They threw the right dart. Howie Roseman in Philadelphia throwing the dart for Jalen Hurts last yes. year. That's the right That's the right decision. That's right. You want to invest capital in the most valuable position on the board. You are only as good as your backup quarterback, your backup tackle, and your backup edge rusher. Because at some point, all of those guys are going to play in meaningful and important games, whether you do your job right or not. Just ask Patrick Mahomes. Right, right. Like, guys, Chad Henney won a playoff game. Won a playoff. Say that out loud to yourself. (laughs) Chad Henney won a playoff game. Like, did anybody else see that coming? Of course not. But Andy reads a quarterback whisperer and will get whatever the best it is out of anybody. You know, Patrick Mahomes probably succeeds a lot of places in the NFL. I don't think he succeeds in Jacksonville if Doug Marone's got him. Sorry. Like, he probably has a lot of fun and has a Phillip Rivers-esque career where he's got a lot of stats but not a lot of wins. And I just, I don't know what you could possibly ask for from your backup quarterback more than that, Right. There are kind of two archetypes. One is your kind of traditional journeyman veteran, you know, your Ryan Fitzpatrick, Teddy Bridgewater, that kind of tier of QB. The other thing that I think more people should kind of invest in, especially while your quarterback is kind of in the twilight, not necessarily over the hill yet, but like if you're if you're Atlanta and you have Matt Ryan, 
third, fourth round quarterback next year is probably a good idea. Why? Because if he hits, he has value. And you can either move him or move Matt Ryan. They should have selected a quarterback in the second or third round of this year. Yeah. And I mean, I wouldn't... It, when you want to do that is entirely up to the organization, right? There's no like right or wrong time. It's just if you find a guy that you like, like clearly the Cowboys did not assume that Dak Prescott was going to be their starting quarterback at any point. That was Tony Romo's job until it wasn't, right? They did not draft him with the intent of starting him week one. It just happened. And their success for the future has all been built on that moment. They took Ezekiel Elliott. He would have been really great with Romo. That team would have been really, really good with Tony Romo, one of the most disrespected quarterbacks of all time. But that team is successful because they hit on Dak Prescott in the fourth round. When you throw those darts, it doesn't necessarily matter how good or bad your process is. Eventually, you're going to hit. Every NFL team should draft a quarterback in every draft. I would hesitate to go that far, but not far from it, right? At, at least at least throw a dart, right? Because in the sixth and seventh round, what are you drafting for anyway? Upside. What's the most upside position in the sport? It's quarterback. So when you find, right, when you find kind of value at quarterback in that sense, like until this year, Dak Prescott wasn't making a whole lot of money. It allowed Dallas to surround him with all kinds of fun toys. Now we're going to find out just how good Dak Prescott really is. Can he carry a team to wins and losses? We know we can put up the numbers. Didn't the Patriots get a first rounder from Garoppolo? Perfect example. I think it might have been a second. Garoppolo, Brissett, they... They got value from their backup quarterbacks, even just drafting them to be backups, right? No, nobody expected Jacoby Brissett to start anywhere. He ended up doing pretty well, all things considered, right? Yeah, second round pick now looks like a square deal for Jimmy Garoppolo. Right, and the thing is now, once they're done with him, somebody's going to have an injury at QB, and maybe it's this year, maybe it's next year, but Trey, <clears throat> Trey Lance is going to take over, right, at some point, and now Jimmy Garoppolo's trade bait, or... Or, like we were just talking about, one of the best backup QB situations in the league, as long as, <clears throat> as, long as the money changes, right? I think th- that's that's where you you have to figure out how much am I gonna how much am I willing to ride or die with my starting quarterback? Because I've got news for everybody here: we love Brandon Bean, we love what Buffalo is doing. They got Mitchell Trubisky for nothing, nothing, nothing at all, right? And as your starter in Chicago, that's a problem. As your backup in Buffalo, that's one of the best contracts in the NFL this year. Like They have all of the security of a guy that started more than a few games. And there's still something to be salvaged there. That's my opinion. But I think that's where your value is. That's where you find value, is find somebody that everybody else has cast aside, that nobody cares about, and pay him next to nothing. See if you can get it out of him, right? What did do me a favor? Look it up because I can't remember offhand. What did the Titans give up for Ryan Tannehill after the world had given up on him? The Miami Dolphins today announced they have traded quarterback Ryan Tannehill and a 2019 sixth round pick to the Titans for a 2019 seventh round pick and a 2020 fourth round pick. Congratulations! It was essentially a fourth rounder. I mean, wow! You just got arguably a top five quarterback in the sport, definitely top ten, right? For nothing.
The Miami Dolphins today announced they have traded quarterback Ryan Tannehill and a 2019 sixth-round pick to the Titans for a 2019 seventh-round pick and a 2020 fourth-round pick. Congratulations. It was essentially a fourth-rounder. I mean, wow! you just got what we announced earlier. Is arguably, arguably, he's not the sexiest name, arguably a top-five quarterback in this sport. Almost definitely top 10, absolutely top 12, right? For nothing. For nothing. At the time, he had the second highest passer rating in Dolphins history. Behind some guy named Marino. <laughs> and they gave that guy up for a fourth rounder. Yeah. What? Look at what he's done in Tennessee. Could you imagine if he had stayed in Miami with this roster? Total insanity. And now the problem is, like a bitter ex, everybody in South Florida... He's going to have to watch Ryan Tannehill prosper with his new toys in Tennessee. And I'm not saying this is the case, but if Tua doesn't work out, that's going to be really tough to swallow. That's going to be so tough for them. There are so many avenues to finding quarterback value that I think the more darts you throw at it, the better off you're going to be long term. New England kind of perfected that recipe, so to speak. That's the show. Like last time, I'm gonna you had a, you had a nice crescendo there. Yeah, talking about Dak and what matters, and you had a good, couple good crescendos that, to go out on. I try to kind of as we're getting to the end of like our hour and a half. I just want to give us a shout out to ourselves here. We just did a show on one bullet item on the show sheet, and we did it. We did it. We did uh, an hour forty on a single bullet item. Lots to get into there. Draft value is fun. I'm a little disappointed because you didn't really glitch much. I think the weird, weirdest part about the whole like social media landscape at the moment is, it seems like like I was having this conversation with someone every bit the other day. It's kind of weird that we've assigned each social media its own kind of content slash value because I mean realistically, you could use any of them to do anything. You know what I mean? Like you could use you could use YouTube to post content. You could use Twitter to go live. You know, it just we don't assign things to them that way, which I think is funny. We have to go live to YouTube. Like that's a that's that's for sure. That's where the biggest audience is. Well, I don't care. We just won't go live on Facebook. I don't fucking care. We'll just go live on Twitter and YouTube and Twitch. Whatever the, whatever is the, fr- the free version. I'll just use that. Like, I don't... Yeah. I, I just... The, the whole Facebook angle, too, is kind of like... A, let's just say it's not the most cutting edge of resources at this point. So The message boards and the blogs, because it's the Steelers and they're so delusional, are like... We, we, we fleeced them again. Steelers fleece another NFL team. And I'm like, dude, you don't. What? What are you doing? Like, this is so delusional. Your front office is delusional. They're drafting running backs and they're trading for middle backers. Like, th- you, uh, hello? You're doing the opposite stuff. The Steelers are spending the least amount of money, period. I think a big part of it is like, we'll, we'll get into it, but I think a big part of that is their receiver room, their you know, and their defense, relatively speaking, are all young guys. So, like, until they're they're forced to pay them, you're in kind of a flux situation where you want to keep Ben, you want to keep, you know, it's not like they were bad last year. I mean, they went undefeated for 12 straight weeks, and, it, you know, they, the wheels kind of fell off after week 12. But the NFL moves so quickly, life comes at you fast in the NFL, and the idea that a, a 12-0 team in 2020 could be, last in the division in 2021 seems crazy to people but it's very possible it's like the nfc west it's a total bloodbath so let's get started yeah let's do it 
I know some of you are looking in the mirror wondering, maybe I should manscape. Like the podfather told me to. Yes. Manscaped.com. Manscaped.com. Promo code podfather for 20% off. If Lamar Jackson hits and you have him for that extra year, that's everything. That's a Super Bowl. And then they got Jadavian Crownley for free. <laughs> they don't exist. Yeah, they don't hit the market ever. Ever. You just get ready for it. Prepare your body for the Lions to roar in Miami. It would have gone Sewell and the Jalen Waddle pick made no fucking sense to me. I think if you put Eli in the Hall of Fame, you have to put him in too. No wonder Ryan Tannehill struggled early in his career. His number one wide receiver was Brian Hartline. Yeah, I think Brian himself would probably tell you that he that he coached a couple better guys than he was a receiver in the NFL. Br- Br- Brian Hartline. They have a Bosa. They have a Bosa. They have a Bosa. How do you not love a team with a Bosa? The Raiders, man. What are you going to do with the Raiders? Oh, well, well what are the Raiders going to do? Nothing. They're the Raiders. How do you not love a team with a Bosa? They have a Bosa. They have a Bosa. They have a Bosa. They have a Bosa. They have a Bosa.